I mean, I think the sort of societal association between alcohol being more dangerous than cannabis has to do with the fact that for some people, alcohol is very disinhibiting. And so it can lead to public drunkenness and drinking and driving and other harms, not just to the individual, but harms to others. However, I would say that depending upon the person, you can have potentially just as much other harm with cannabis as you can with alcohol. And again, there's enormous inter-individual variability, but this idea that cannabis is harmless because really you're just kind of smoked out, sitting on the couch, amotivated, not bothering anybody, is turning out to be less and less true, especially with these more, more potent forms. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is chief of the Stanford Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. Dr. Lemke has testified before Congress and consulted with governors and senators from Kentucky to Missouri to Nevada. You may also recognize her from her appearance on the hit Netflix movie, The Social Dilemma. Aside from this, Anna has also written two books, Drug Dealer MD and the New York Times bestseller, Dopamine Nation. Today on the show, we discuss whether or not Dr. Lemke believes cannabis is a gateway drug, why cannabis is not a reliable solution for anxiety, how cannabis interacts with dopamine, why cannabis is both physically and psychologically addictive, how to deal with the withdrawals from quitting cannabis, and why abstaining from it will make your life much better, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going, and welcome Dr. Anna Lemke back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me back, Doug. It's great to be here. It's great to see you, and I'd love to, to jump right in. I know a lot of your work, a lot of your research revolves around dopamine. And based on what you know about dopamine and all of your research, do you believe that marijuana can be a gateway drug to other substances? Let's start by first defining what we mean by gateway, because that, that term is used a lot. And I think when it's used colloquially, what we mean is that just like it sounds a metaphor, it's we start with one thing and it leads to another. But in the scientific literature, there's actually a claim that some drugs physiologically, because of the way that they work on the brain, literally set that person up for higher risk for addiction to other drugs because of something unique about that particular drug. For example, there is a there are a series of papers by like very esteemed neuroscientists saying that, for example, nicotine is a gateway to other drugs because of exactly how it operates on the brain. So I, I tend to be skeptical of that claim at the beginning. That is to say the claim that there's something uniquely physiologic about some drugs that makes them a gateway to other drugs. And instead, what I think we're, the phenomenon I think we're seeing there is that legal drugs, because they're more accessible, are usually the drugs that people start with. 
And it's only once they become more addicted and then are looking for another high or a different kind of high, are they willing to cross those societal and legal boundaries to get other drugs. But it's not that there's something unique, for example, about alcohol and nicotine that then moves people to specific other drugs. I don't know if this is making much sense, but the point is if heroin were legal and alcohol wasn't, I think that heroin might be viewed as a gateway drug, right? Because it's just, it's people are using it, it's normalized, it's socially sanctioned. If alcohol were illegal, then people wouldn't use it as much. You know, they would, it would take more activation energy to get people there. So I think that the whole gateway drug phenomenon is is less about um, this unique drug leading to that unique drug and more about just simple accessibility. Now, what is true about the gateway phenomenon is that once we have primed our dopamine reward pathway with highly addictive substances, we are more vulnerable to getting addicted to other things. So in that sense, really anything can be a gateway to anything else that's addictive. We know this from human behavior and we know it from animal studies showing, for example, that if you get a rat addicted to cocaine and then you take that rat, that cocaine away, and then you expose that rat to cannabis, that rat will get addicted to cannabis um, much faster than a rat who had never been exposed to cocaine, right? So there's something that happens in the brain, some kind of permanent physiologic change with exposure to one drug that then translates to the increased vulnerability to the same behaviors repeating themselves with another drug. So do you think that there's also a gateway like mechanism with something specific to something like marijuana, which is highly legal now in many states in the US and it's very accessible that people can get primed and can get used to dealing with life with a substance and because marijuana is so accessible that that becomes the thing that they use to cope and deal with life and then they use so much of it that they can't get the same effect that they may have gotten when they initially started it. So they need to chase after a more potent substance. Do you think there's validity there? Oh, for sure. I mean, that's exactly how addiction works, right? Whatever the substance is, over time, our brain adapts such that, uh, you know, we need more of the substance in more potent forms to get the same effect. And if we go further, you know, far enough in that, in that progression, we eventually get to a point where not only is the drug not working, but it actually turns on us, causing the opposite of what we hope for. And that happens with cannabis all the time, where people will initially use it to relieve anxiety, but then it creates anxiety. They'll use it to sleep, but then it keeps them up. Um, they need more of it in more potent forms. Almost anybody who's a habitual cannabis user will tell you that it stops working or it doesn't work as well. Then they take a break. They recapture some of that original um, sensitivity, you know, then they go back to using it. They need less than to get the same effect. So, I mean, this is, this is the process of neuroadaptation that occurs in response to, to any addictive drug. And yes, um, you know, just like with any addictive drug, um, we see that people who become addicted to cannabis then are also more vulnerable to getting addicted to other substances because of that neuroadaptation, but also because of the learned behaviors, as you point out, what we sometimes call chemical coping where it just becomes then the reflexive thing. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I'm feeling pain. I'm going to do this thing or use this substance to take that feeling away. 
Um, and I'm in control of it over it, right? So the control piece is really a big part of it too. It's like, I'm going to take it away with this action that I'm going to do now. And that we call chemical coping. So a lot of our work with patients is trying to move them away from chemical coping and doing two things. Number one, helping them find healthier, more adaptive coping strategies, but also probably even more importantly, learning that, learning, uh, teaching them to just uh, sort of sit and tolerate the pain and just kind of, you know, wait it out. I, I feel like cannabis and mar- mar- marijuana specifically has been touted as this, I guess, fairly healthy mechanism to cope with things like anxiety and and sleep and, and you know, needing to get sleep and stuff like that by, by many people. And I've, I've also seen that off, it, it can often have the adverse effect where it makes those things worse. What's your stance? Like, Do you believe that marijuana is a effective um, coping strategy for, for mental health issues? Well, well, let's just look at the evidence. If you review the studies uh, for whether or not cannabis works to treat uh, mental health disorders, what you'll find is that there is no reliable evidence to support the efficacy of cannabis in the treatment of any mental health disorder. And what little evidence does exist, it's not reliable or robust, and it mostly comes um, from studies looking at the use of cannabis in things like multiple sclerosis and spasticity. And so the primary outcome measure for those studies is not actually looking at psychiatric outcomes. So the studies were not designed to look at that, but then a post hoc analysis reveals that there might have been some temporary relief of depression or anxiety. Again, I will emphasize that the, the, the evidence is not there uh, to support cannabis being effective treatment for any mental health disorder. Now, here's what I do think it's important to take a moment to validate, that in the very short term, when we use cannabis, many of us experience elevated mood. Many of us experience relief from anxiety. Many of us experience ability to go to sleep some of the most common reasons that people will report um, using cannabis along with using cannabis to alleviate physical pain. But the problem is that anything that works that well and that fast is going to be vulnerable to this process of neuroadaptation, which means that over time it will stop working. Then the person will have uh, their old problem back plus a new problem, which is that they are potentially physically dependent on the cannabis and now need more and more to get the same effect and will experience withdrawal if they stop. So do you think that marijuana is not only um, psychologically addicting, but also physically addictive as well? So the this dichotomy between physical and psychological addiction is a funny one um, because psychological addiction is physical, right? I mean, this is all happening in our brains and these are chemical changes and synaptic uh, remodeling and all of that. Um, But yes, I mean, there are these different dimensions of addiction. What happens a lot with cannabis is people will say, well, it's not, it's not addictive because when I stop, I don't have any withdrawal. Or people will say with alcohol addiction, well, I'm not addicted because I don't go into withdrawal when I stop alcohol, even though other people do. Um, But, you know, this physical withdrawal is only one manifestation of withdrawal. 
I always like to say that the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance or behavior are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and craving. And I can tell you that most people who use cannabis daily who stop uh, for a period of time will experience anxiety, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. So um, it's very clear that cannabis is addictive. It's very clear that it's both physical behavior and a learned behavior. So some of this, you know, chemical coping or habit formation, or just like the linked association between, oh, I feel better when I use cannabis. And so that's a learned association, right? But the problem is that that learned association can get kind of calcified in our brains, where we have this sort of recall or memory for what the drug can do even if it becomes very much at odds with what the drug actually does, right? So we have this idea, cannabis helps my anxiety. When it's clear that I've now reached a point where it's not actually helping my anxiety, and I'm way more anxious than I was two years ago when I started using cannabis to help my anxiety. So this is the kinds of things we need to draw patients' attention to because it's very, very easy to lose cause and effect as we are chasing dopamine. So going back to something you said a few minutes ago, where you said in the short term, like, yes, it can feel like something like marijuana or cannabis can be very helpful for, for something like anxiety, but in the long term, it, it can be quite detrimental. Why is that? Like, what does marijuana do to the brain for it to specifically impact the way we manage anxiety, we feel anxious and stuff like that? Right. So cannabis works on our cannabinoid receptors, our anandamide receptors, uh, our CB1 receptors specifically, which are widely distributed throughout the brain and ultimately lead to this final common pathway of releasing dopamine in our brain's reward and motivation circuits. What happens in the, basically all human organisms have a drive toward homeostasis, right? Or whatever our baseline level of anandamide that's our endogenous cannabis, the ones that we make in our brain, our endogenous anandamide transmission, our endogenous dopamine transmission. We all have kind of like a baseline level of firing of these essential hormones and neurotransmitters. That's called homeostasis. And one of the universal principles governing all physiologic processes, including our brain reward processes, uh, pleasure and pain, is to return to homeostasis. So what cannabis does, like with all reinforcing substances and behaviors, is it temporarily gets us out of that homeostatic balance and tilts toward our reinforcing side or our pleasure side or whatever, relieving pain. It's a positive experience. But in response, our brains want to restore homeostasis, and they do that by downregulating our anandamide and dopamine transmission not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline levels into this dopamine deficit state, which is craving, right? It's, it's withdrawal, it's craving. It might be slightly outside of conscious awareness, but of course it motivates us to want to reach for that drug again as a way to recapture, you know, that initial pleasurable response. And if we do that, then repeatedly over time, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response the pain gets stronger and longer. In other words, the process of neuroadaptation is a progressive one where we essentially can end up in a dopamine, chronic dopamine deficit state where we've reset our hedonic or our joy set point. We've so bombarded our reward pathway with this highly reinforcing substance 
that in order to compensate, our brain has developed a new normal where when we're not using, right, we're in this dopamine deficit state, which by the way is exactly like depression, right? It's to, it's too little dopamine. It's below our homeostatic baseline. And once we reach that point, now we're entering addicted brain. Now we need to use not to get high, but just to feel normal. And in order to get high, we need to use ever greater potency, potency and quantity type forms. So that that's, we begin to chase our tail. What, what initially is problem solving becomes the problem itself, but we don't see it. And I think that's really the key that we don't see this causal relationship between all of the pot we're smoking and feeling more depressed, more anxious. All we know is that in the moment, we're relieved of our anxiety. And of course, that control piece is a big part of addiction too. It's like, well, I might be more miserable, but at least I can fine-tune control when I'm miserable and when I'm not. And there's a big pull with that. How has marijuana changed over the years? I mean, I've heard from people, colleagues of mine, or just friends in general that have had interactions with it or their kids or whatever, that it's quite different now than when I was, you know, when I was doing stuff when I was a kid. If you could explain that, I think people would really appreciate that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure as your listeners have heard many times, the pot of today is not the pot of yesteryear and that these plants can be genetically engineered to have variable content of certain active ingredients. THC is the active and addictive and psychotropic or mind-altering ingredient in cannabis. CBD is not addictive, and you can genetically engineer a plant to have more or less of one or the other. These are these different strains. And what's happened now is that people have gotten into the business of engineering uh, the cannabis plant to have very high content CBD. I mean, sometimes that too, CBD, but THC is really what most people are going for. And then you have different ways of kind of, you know, um, processing the plant and also the resin. So you get this dabbing with the resin, which is sort of like the most potent part of the potent THC plant. The result being that some forms of cannabis now have 90% THC, whereas in the 60s, it was at most 10% THC. The other big change with cannabis today is, of course, we have these um, sort of uh, vaping delivery mechanisms right? So, you know, even without having to go through the bother of like manipulating the plant to roll a blunt or a spliff or something, you've got these cartridges that people can sort of suck on all day long. So you've got increased access through the engineering of the delivery mechanism. And then you have uh, changes in cultural norms where people have come to regard cannabis as safe. They see it as medicinal. They see it as not harmful. It's normalized on, you know, podcasts like Joe Rogan. He has a huge influence. You know, he 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 uses it. Other people use it. So so there's this idea that it's it's not harmful. And what you have today, what what data show is that whereas in the '60s, people who used cannabis would use it on the weekends with friends, but not like during the week. And what we're seeing more and more now is daily cannabis wake and bake users. So they start in the morning, they use all day till they go to bed. So not just higher potency, but also these more rapid delivery mechanisms and then a culture that has sort of contributed to normalizing all day, every day use. So is it safe to say that marijuana in general is not good for the health of our brain? I can say that with pretty good confidence. First of all, smoking anything is bad for us. Um, 
So the edibles are a little bit of a harm reduction strategy, but most people don't want to use the edibles because of the delayed onset of action. And then cannabis is just definitively addictive. Now, I wouldn't want to say that there's no situation in which it's uh, useful. So there are, there is reliable evidence that short-term cannabis can help with, um, you know, AIDS and chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting, um, AIDS and chemotherapy-related anorexia, and uh, spasticity in the context of multiple sclerosis and other neurodegenerative disorders, as well as short-term pain. So th those are good evidence. The problem is just like with opioids, what works short-term doesn't necessarily work long-term. And there are no st studies supporting use of cannabis for any medical indication long-term. So again, you know, all of these things, when used in the right way, in the right context, including cannabis, um, although I would say cannabis, the plant, is not FDA approved for any medical indication. It's the some of the active derivatives. And smoking is not FDA approved for any medical indication. But the actual, you know, THC um, has been shown to be effective short term for these medical conditions, but not any psychiatric conditions. We're in the midst of this horrific opioid epidemic right now. And I know I've had you on the podcast a few times to talk about um, addiction. And, and now, like we're seeing so many people dying from fentanyl and, and stuff like that. And you also hear people say, well, it's harm reduction is effective because it just gives addicts another shot. It keeps them alive. It gives them hope, which obviously I, I agree with. We should try to do what we can to, to save the lives of addicts. I also know that marijuana is, like we've said, is very addictive and that if you use that as a form of harm reduction, logically, it could make sense. But psychologically and physiologically, as you just explained, it doesn't really make sense to so talk about like cannabis and marijuana's effectiveness as a form of harm reduction for people coming off of opioid addiction. Yeah. So I always like to start these conversations by defining harm reduction. Harm reduction speaks to the ways that we can mitigate harm related to use without necessarily stopping use. And um, I mean, that's things like DUI checks for drunk drivers. That's a form of harm reduction, right? Um, clean needle exchange is a form of harm reduction, right? So we're trying to mitigate the harm to the individual and to society more broadly through an intervention. Um, I think, though, what's happened of late is that we now almost talk about harm reduction and abstinence oriented as like enemies of each other. And it never was that way before. And it somehow become like so many things in our culture, you know, politi politically polarized. Like if you're, if you're, if you think that abstinence is a path of recovery for people, then you're against harm reduction. This is the kind of thinking, or if you're pro harm reduction, then you're, you must by definition be against abstinence. And that, that's really not um, a sort of a fruitful or productive orientation you know, we've got recovery. And then within the broader context of trying to help people, uh, there's this idea, well, let's let's at least limit also work to limit the harms um, of people who are using drugs, the harms to themselves and or others. But what I, I'm afraid has also happened there is that in that process of trying to limit harms, we've sort of on some level decided that for some people, that's as far as they need to go. That that harm reduction is not a path to recovery, but just an end in itself. And I think 
we're doing people a disservice in that regard. Because I think, again, the whole idea is predicated on drugs being harmful, right? And somehow we've gone from drugs being harmful and wanting to try to help people, all people, get into recovery um, to thinking that, well, actually, drugs are fine. Drugs are fine. And, you know, people who can use drugs in a non-harmful way, sure, uh, maybe that that's true. You know, a lot of people drink alcohol and it's not a harm to sell for others. But if we're talking about addiction, then we're talking about harmful use, right? And then I, I really do think the goal for all of those individuals is recovery. Um, but it's somehow gotten gotten sort of uh, distorted to this goal of like that it's actually maybe almost superior that drug use is okay and people who use drugs and I don't I, I don't subscribe to that school of thought specifically with cannabis um, for example there was this idea that maybe cannabis could help people get off of prescription opioids right that that would be what was called a harm reduction strategy for that but what the data have shown is that people with chronic pain on opioids who are trying to get off who add cannabis in the mix don't actually end up getting off these opioids. They end up on opioids and cannabis and they end up with worse pain. And that's, you know, not all that surprising when you're thinking about the addiction diathesis and you're really owning and acknowledging addiction as its own disease. Um, the other thing I think that can be even just within our own minds, I've had lots of patients who kept going back to their drug because they told themselves, I'm doing harm reduction. I'm doing harm reduction. And despite all the evidence to the contrary that they weren't doing harm reduction and th these were relapses and that they were leading to a lot of harm, this sort of harm reduction mantra had just sort of penetrated the culture and penetrated their minds and, and resulted in them spinning in that addiction vortex for a lot longer than they might have if someone had just come along and said, you have the disease of addiction and it's very likely that you can never use this drug again. Because uh, we, we've done the experiment and doing the experiment is legit, right? That's good. Get the research. But like, how much research do you need? I mean, at some point, it's very clear that you are harming yourself and or others because every time you use this drug, that you, those are those outcomes. Anyway, be curious about your thoughts on that. I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. I think anytime you go against harm reduction, the adverse reaction can be, well, you, don't, you just don't care about addicts. And it's like, well, no, I, I care so much about addicts. And I've, I mean, I can only speak from my own experience, but I know that marijuana is addictive for, for a lot of addicts, right? It was certainly addictive for me and a lot of other people that I know and it led to other things. And that if the goal is for this person to become happier and to be fulfilled in life and reestablish healthy relationships with themselves and others, that in my experience and what I've heard from a lot of other people, like, you know, using marijuana every day when you're an addict is not the best approach to getting there, right? And based on all the evidence that you've just shared that there's zero evidence to support that marijuana use has um, benefits for mental health disorders over the long term, right? So now that we know that, I think people can hopefully understand that, like, yes, it's it's a great maybe short-term bridge. Like I'd like to know your thoughts on on that to help people transition off of an addiction to something much more harmful like an opioid into onto something else that can hopefully lead them towards the path. And so I guess with all that said, you talked about 
there's evidence to support that people who have chronic pain or taking opiates, when they use cannabis as a form of harm reduction, they end up using both drugs to treat the pain and and, and end up with worse pain. Right. But as far as addicts, like if it's, if there's an addict that's addicted to a prescription medication, and then they're like, okay, I'm going to go to to somewhere, I'm going to use cannabis for three to six months or whatever it is to because it's a less potent drug, but hopefully I can then transition down from that into, you know, abstinence and sobriety and stuff. Is there any evidence to suggest that something like that would work? There's no evidence to support that. And our clinical experience would say that this is just switching addiction addictions. Furthermore, cannabis is a really potent drug now. Um, and that person might discover that the drug they were trying to quit was nothing compared to their addiction to cannabis, right? So there's whole this whole drug of choice that we're all wired slightly differently. What's really reinforcing for your reward pathway may not be for mine and vice versa. So in this process of trying to use cannabis to get off of heroin, that person might discover that really cannabis was their drug of choice all along. And it's a heck of a lot harder for them to get off of cannabis than it was to get off of heroin. You know what I mean? I mean, we this this idea that cannabis is somehow safe or medical or you know, it really depends on the person and it's, there's no evidence of, of medicinal value when it comes to treating addiction um, or other mental health disorders. So that would not be whatever, I would never recommend that path to somebody. I think that would be just so fraught uh, in so many ways. I would, I would imagine that it's even harder sometimes to come off of something like cannabis or even like alcohol because it is so normalized in society that there are people that can have a healthy relationship with both of these substances, as you alluded to earlier. And the person, I'm sure, goes like, why can't I do that? Right? Why can't I have a healthy relationship with, with cannabis or with alcohol and so many other people around me can, right? Because you don't really have that conversation with like heroin and cocaine. It's not like, you know, typically people don't really have healthy relationships with either of those drugs, right? Those tend to be something that you get addicted to fast. And it's a very, very fast progressive deterioration of, of your, of your life, right? If you're doing it every single day. And, and with all that said, alcohol is also very normalized and you'll hear people say, well, marijuana is safer than alcohol or, you know, a marriage has never been ruined because of alcohol or people aren't likely to you know, kill somebody in a car accident or whatever the example is when they're on marijuana compared to alcohol. What are your thoughts on the differences in as far as in addiction and how they impact the brain between marijuana and alcohol? Well, again, all reinforcing substances and behaviors work on the same reward pathway, uh, lead to this you know, dopamine release followed by this progressive dopamine deficit state. So really there are more similarities than differences. I mean, I think the sort of societal association between alcohol being more dangerous than cannabis has to do with the fact that for some people, alcohol is very disinhibiting. Um, and so it can lead to public drunkenness and drinking and driving and other harms, not just to the individual, but harms to others, which society gets alarmed about, right? It's one thing if you're deciding to do something to your own body. It's another thing if you're now intoxicated and um, acting out in a way that's harmful. However, um, I would say that depending upon the person, you can have uh, potentially just as much other harm with cannabis 
as you can with alcohol. And again, there's enormous inter-individual variability, but this idea that cannabis is harmless because really you're just kind of smoked out, sitting on the couch, A-motivated, not bothering anybody, is you know not turning out to be less and less true, especially with these more, more potent forms. So we have people who are now you know, driving under the influence. And we know that it affects reflexes. It affects um, people's likelihood of getting in a motor vehicle accident. Maybe it's not as bad as alcohol in terms of those parameters, but it's actively being studied now. And I'll be curious to see what the evidence shows, because it could be that it's just as harmful to use cannabis and drive as it is to drink and drive. Um, the other thing is that people often forget the extent to which cannabis is a powerful psychotomimetic meaning that it can make some people really, really paranoid. And paranoia is considered to be one of the few psychiatric emergencies. So paranoid ideation, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation. Um, when people get paranoid, they do really crazy things. They harm themselves. They harm other people. Um, they just engage in scary acts because they're, they feel that they're in danger. Um, and we see this all the time with cannabis, especially in people who have an underlying sort of propensity for paranoia or psychosis, people with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, some patients with bipolar disorder. Some of those folks, when they use cannabis, their underlying disorder just completely takes off. Our antipsychotic medications don't work. Psychotherapy doesn't work. So, I mean, I think it's, it's almost like a, cultural trope that, you know, cannabis is safe and alcohol is not because we're seeing more and more um, societal and individual harm as a result of cannabis today. How does cannabis and, and marijuana impact like kids differently than adults, if, if anything? I mean, I've, as a, as a personal trainer, I've coached um, a few kids over the last, or young adults over the last few years that have ended up having psychotic breaks due to excessive marijuana use. And I have a lot of parents that listen to the podcast. And I would imagine that, you know, unless people are like studying the science and they're up to date on all the the stuff regarding marijuana, they might just see marijuana as something as the same kind of potency and the same type of substance that they may have used or seen being used when they were growing up at a, in an earlier point. Is there any differences in how marijuana impacts like a, a teenager or young adult's brain versus somebody who's like my age at 35? Yeah. I remember I was at dinner about 15 years ago with uh, one of the administrative leaders of Stanford. And I was trying to, uh, you know, engage him in a conversation about the dangers, the growing dangers of drug use on college campuses, um, including growing dangers with cannabis. And he just completely dismissed it. He was a child of the 60s. And he said, you know, I drank, I smoked pot in college. You know, that was part of a rite of passage. You know, that's what we, that's what young people do. They're out there experimenting. It's no big deal. And, you know, you're just trying to like, you know, you're a party pooper. And he didn't, he didn't use those words, but that was essentially the message. But, you know, what, what, what people don't realize, especially I would say people of that generation, what they don't appreciate about this generation of young people is the extent to which young people have incredible access to highly potent drugs of all kinds. And that polypharmacy has become the norm. So people who use cannabis don't just use cannabis. They're using MDMA molly. They're using psychedelics. They're binge drinking. They're shooting up heroin 
I mean, and it's all over, all over the world, including in elite, prestigious college campuses. The other thing we're seeing is many, many more young people who use in isolation. And this is really, I think, one of the scariest things about it. It's not like it's like a bonding experience. These people are going home to their rooms in their parents' homes or to their dorm room on campus, and they're using by themselves. And so this kind of loneliness and progressive isolation, and it's just devastating. It's devastating because many college campuses do not yet recognize the extent to which drugs and alcohol are accessible, prevalent, potent on college campuses, and incredibly destabilizing for building any form of community. So if somebody is listening to this and they've smoked or used marijuana a lot, or a parent has a, has a kid that has, and let's just say that they've become aware of this and they want to change, they want to get better, and they're thinking to themselves, am I going to be this way forever? Is my brain going to be like permanently damaged or destroyed? I mean, what's the path like as far as like healing the brain to become like, I guess, more normal after excessive marijuana use? Yeah, so there's lots of reason for hope. The brain preserves enormous plasticity throughout life, but especially when we're young. One of the early interventions that we do is to we ask people to abstain from cannabis products for four weeks as a way to reset reward pathways, get dopamine firing back up to healthy level homeostatic, healthy homeostatic levels. Uh, we warn patients they're going to feel worse before they feel better. Those first 10 to 14 days are excruciating, but if they can make it to four weeks, what they'll notice is they get out of that craving vortex. They're able to see true cause and effect. Usually symptoms of anxiety, depression, insomnia, dysphoria, craving are much, much better. They're able to be more present, to take joy in other things. They're more connecting more to other people. Um, and so, you know, there's plenty of reason for hope. And a lot of times this experiment of kind of dopamine fasting or abstaining for four weeks gives people a lot of information on just how addicted they become, on how much better they feel not using, on how what they thought was helping their depression, anxiety was actually making it worse. So there's enormous plasticity, lots of reason for hope. Um, people can change behaviors at any stage of life. And because cannabis tends to not have a life-threatening withdrawal syndrome, unlike some other drugs, um, you know, people can stop it and kind of go cold turkey. And if they can endure it, they can get to a place pretty quickly where they feel a whole lot better. So that's that's sort of the first stage um, that of sort of entering into exploring uh, a recovery lifestyle or an abstinence-oriented lifestyle. But even if the long-term goal is moderation, cannabis, you know, in moderation, the way to get there is to start first by abstaining for long enough to reset reward pathways, and then to be very intentional about what what they'll use, how much, how often, and also accountable and honest if it doesn't work um, so that if they're not able to moderate after a period of abstinence, they can be more embracing of you know abstinence uh, as probably the best option for them. And a lot of times what we talk about too is kind of reframing abstinence, not as a, a sort of self-denial, but actually as a self-affirmation, you know, as, as a way to be your best self, to live your your best life to really do yourself a favor. Um, so those are those are kind of some of the things that we talk about. Have you seen people again just framing this in a way that assuming that whatever state you're living in or whatever country you're living in, this is legal to do? 
have you seen people who were addicted to something like marijuana or cannabis be able to abstain from it from a period of time and then have a healthy relationship with it like down the road? It's rare that people are actually able to maintain a successful moderation long term. Um, I, I would say that the, most of what we see when people go back to it, if they decide to go back to it, is that gradually over time they they accelerate to where they're they're using it uh, in a harmful and destructive way. But having said that, um, you know, I I, I I have had clinical cases where people use very, very rarely. So rarely looks like, um, you know, maybe once a year for a very special event, something like that. Um, there are also a couple of papers out, though, showing uh, specifically with cannabis that if people can reduce their use either in quantity or frequency, for example, having, you know, four non-using days in a given week, um, as well as using less when they do use, that those those individuals show improvement in anxiety, markers of anxiety, depression, and well-being. So, you know, even though I, I still think the ideal for most is abstinence, we do definitely see that people can do better by reducing their use. So that's a laudable goal to move toward. And for those who are trying to quit something like that, I know that I mean, the most challenging thing, at least in the short term, is the withdrawal symptoms, is the increased maybe anxiety, sleepless nights, the regret, shame, maybe they have some physical symptoms or whatever the case may be. And they can be tough to sit through. And I know that's probably like the easy answer to say, you know what, just sit through the pain and just know that you're going to get on the other side of it. But a lot of times it's way easier said than done. Like, what do you recommend to people who are trying to recover from marijuana addiction um, so that they can have um, a decent experience um, through the, through the withdrawal process. So, I mean, you know, addiction is a biopsychosocial disease, so that requires biopsychosocial interventions. We have some medicines that can help people with cannabis withdrawal. I mean, they're tricky to use in their own right, but they, they can be useful tools. Um, in terms of the psychosocial, you know, spiritual pathways and principles can really help people. Prayer, meditation, those have been also shown to increase dopamine. So they're a way to access healthy levels of dopamine. Um, peer support, you know, get getting um, support from others. Um, and then I, I also recommend what, 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 what's sometimes referred to as hormesis. It's a branch of science showing that um, intentionally doing things that are hard, like exercise or ice cold water immersion, especially in states of craving or as preventative, um, can really help people with short-term withdrawal. So I strongly recommend that people engage in those painful activities that are more painful than the pain of withdrawal as a way to actually uh, get through uh, the pain of withdrawal. Now, I'm not talking about cutting or other self-harm. I'm talking about the right level of uh, physically challenging experiences um, through exercise, and ice water, oh, it's called water plunges and other, you know, uh, yoga, tai chi, taekwondo, whatever, you know, all of that sort of the embodied meditation can be that too, prayer. So what you're saying is at the first few weeks of withdrawal are going to be tough, but once you get to the four week mark, a lot of the cravings start to dissipate and go away and you start to really notice a, a major difference in the way you feel. Yeah. One of my patients said that when you're standing on this side of recovery or a dopamine fast, 
it really feels like you're standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and you're being asked to literally leap across to the other side. That's how impossible it feels, which I just thought was such a great metaphor and a reminder to me of what that feels like to ask somebody to just put it down for a while. But the truth is that, um, and so I think it's important not to minimize those first 10 to 14 days and really validate how hard that is and how anxiety provoking it is just anticipating it. But really, I'm not asking you to fly across the Grand Canyon. I'm asking you to get on your backpack and get plenty of water and to walk down and walk up the other side. And that's doable, um, especially if you have a guide and if you have somebody to do it with. So that's, that's the recommendation. Dr. Anna Lemke, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom. I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this conversation. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for your advocacy and your support of people uh, struggling with addiction and support of recovery. Uh, you're doing great work. Thank you. That means a lot. And I appreciate you once again coming on the show. Yeah, happy to.